Well, it is already Wednesday in Ukraine. That means Independence Day, celebrating the day back in 1991 when the country's declaration of independence, ending decades of Soviet rule from Moscow, was issued. This year, to say the very least, it brings with it a whole new meaning. Not only is it Independence Day, it also marks six months to the day since Russia once again tried to crush the country and bring it back by force into its realm, launching a full-scale, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And while plans to quickly overrun the country, get rid of the democratically elected regime and replace it with some sort of puppet ostensibly loyal to Putin and hold a victory parade within days in the capital, Kiev, or Kiev, rather, it all failed dramatically and disastrously. The Ukraine of August 24, 2022 is a country at war, a country where thousands have already died, either fighting to fend off a Russian invasion or as civilians are targeted by Russian missiles and artillery. artillery. And it all began here. I was here when it started on the night of the 23rd here, the 24th in Ukraine. We were on the air when we had word that missiles had started to fall on Ukrainian cities. My next guest was near the top of the show that night. In fact, we brought him on not really knowing what was happening. He had expertise, so we talked about it quite a bit. Um, Alexander Lenoshka is an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. He's author of Military Alliances in the 21st Century. He also happens to have been on air with me that night when the war in Ukraine, when the full-scale unprovoked invasion of Ukraine began. So as we mark six months and for Ukrainian Independence Day, I wanted to bring Alexander back to talk about what's happened since and what could happen next. Alexander, thanks so much for your time tonight. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I can't believe it's been six months already. It feels like a lifetime. It has been a long time. That was quite the night. I remember I was listening back to our interview that night, and you said some very prescient things. First of all, we were all surprised that it had actually happened because it had been speculated about for so long. But you talked about how easy it was to invade and how hard it is for an invasion to succeed. And it feels like you hit it right on the head that night, even though we didn't know what was going to happen. Um, what about the last six months has surprised you the most? So to be sure, I think Russia has made some successes or had some successes, especially in the South and in the East, where they have captured large swaths of Ukrainian territory. But of course, as you rightly pointed out earlier, it has fallen well short of its main objectives, which were, I think, regime change and perhaps reducing uh, Ukrainian statehood quite dramatically. None of that has really happened, notwithstanding the massive territorial uh, losses that Ukraine has all the same incurred. What has surprised me the most? Well, a number of things have surprised me. It's a very strange war in some respects, but I think one thing has been the sheer lack of planning involved beyond the two, three, or seven days that the Kremlin expected uh, it would have to fight within Ukraine itself. Uh, it seems like they've given orders on the back of napkins just a few days prior to the launch of the invasion. Uh, we have seen serious tactical deficiencies on the Russian side, notwithstanding, again, uh, what successes they might have had in the South and the East. And I think that goes to show some of the assumptions that Russian defense and political leaders had going into this project, which have really denigrated Ukrainian nationhood or the sense of resistance that they uh, thought that the Ukrainians would at, at, at all put up uh, over the course of this campaign. Have you been surprised? Well, one thing that surprised me, because I'd spent time in the east uh, of Ukraine, and it was an area that wasn't, you know, it's not that it wasn't Ukrainian, but you could tell when you went from east to west that that 
attitudes about the state of Ukraine changed, about Ukraine, Ukrainian nationhood. And it feels like in one fell swoop, Vladimir Putin managed to create a unified, you know, cohesive country um, that hadn't really existed. And as we mark Independence Day, I get the impression that although Ukraine is at war, it has never been more Ukrainian than it is today. To be sure, I think that process has been afoot for a while. I think what happened in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the subsequent destabilization of the Donbass region in the east, um, there has been a growing sense of Ukrainian uh, identity and nationhood that has started to characterize the Ukrainian body politic. Now, of course, there was some sort of identity basis beforehand. I don't want to exaggerate the point, but it's absolutely uh, on mark to say that that sense of identity has indeed solidified since 2014. And since February of this year, I think we have seen a further solidification of that very identity. And indeed, we see that in various opinion polls that have been conducted in recent months, or even in recent days, opinion polls that show that the vast majority of Ukrainian respondents do report um, uh, widespread support for President Zelensky, or the notion that victory is indeed possible, uh, that um, Ukraine should absolutely not make any sort of territorial concessions, and that it is too soon to uh, negotiate some sort of agreement with Russia. Um, that all suggests that there is indeed a very strong sense of unity. And that goes to my point earlier that Russia simply misunderstood Ukraine, not least Putin has misunderstood Ukraine, and that this entire war effort, and again, the successes that this had, has been based on a fundamental miscalculation. And when you look at it six months down the line, you know, there's been untold horror in Ukraine and the death of civilians, the continued attacks on civilian infrastructure is obviously reprehensible. It's something we've seen Russia do in the past in other parts of the world as well. Uh, but the damage this has done to Russia's reputation in so many ways, both as a sort of global military power, but also as some as a country that should be negotiated with, that there is some sort of, you just get the feeling now that Russia is in fact uh, been cast out of the global community to some extent, not everywhere. Uh, but just the damage this has done to Russia's reputation as you know a global military superpower or power at least. Indeed, it is hard for me to envision what role Russia really has in the European security architecture in the years to come, especially under the leadership of Vladimir Putin or some of his protégés, perhaps, uh, if something were to happen to him. It's very unclear how Russia could at all be integrated under the present leadership, under uh, those who are very much closely related to this particular regime. And indeed, there's still a danger that uh, his successor could actually prove to be even more radical and more nationalistic of the sort that we've been seeing in certain Russian discourses, especially since this past weekend. So I think you're right that um, this has uh, demonstrated that Russia is completely out of step with the European security order, or even maybe, dare I say, the broader liberal international order. Um, of course, there are differences of opinion across the world. There are some parts of the world that uh, have been a little more skeptical of the Western response or Western assessments of Russia, but at least as regards to the European security order, which is indeed what Russia ultimately cares about, there is a profound sense of unease and disquiet, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. 
we, we've entered, though, and I guess we'll enter a new phase going into the fall and the winter especially, but we fe it feels like we've really entered into something like a stalemate now. And we're going to see this war uh, evolve in the way it's been evolving this summer, not the way it evolved in the spring. Uh, and that, that, um, that's going to be difficult for Ukraine. That's, that's a tough burden to bear, to have an ongoing stalemate on your territory. I'm not sure I would use the word stalemate to describe what is going on. For sure, if you look at how things are developing on a day-to-day -day basis, it looks rather static and that the line has not all moved, especially since May. Um, however, there is activity going on. We are seeing Ukraine step up um, attacks on various ammunition depots all around Russian-occupied territory, or even within Russia uh, territory itself. We have seen a very a bold attack on airfields located within Crimea itself, uh, attacks that might have, in fact, um, destroyed about half of the Black Sea Fleet's aviation wing. Uh, we are seeing deeper strikes uh, way beyond uh, the Russian front line. And I think that speaks to a strategy that Ukrainian armed forces have at the moment, which is to go about an offensive, but not necessarily go about an offensive that entails large sweeping maneuvers, throwing manpower at the enemy in broad chunks or in large chunks, but rather to systematically and very methodically, pardon me, uh, attrit Russian forces and sort of creep and advance uh, on that territory, precisely because the Ukrainian armed forces do value uh, what manpower that they have and what equipment that they have as well. So there's, a certain slowness to the campaign, but I would not necessarily call it a stalemate as such. My guest is Alexander Lenoshka. He was with us the night of the invasion of Ukraine. The full-scale invasion of Ukraine began. We're catching up six months later. We've spoken since, but we're catching up six months later, getting uh, sort of a state of the world on what's happening in Ukraine. When we come back, we'll flip that on its head a bit and see what Alex thinks, Alexander thinks, of what the Allies have been up to, the Allied response to the invasion. That's next. As Germany is moving away from Russian energy at warp speed, Canada is our partner of choice. For now, this means increasing our LNG imports. We hope that Canadian LNG will play a major role in this. But the task at hand is much bigger than simply diversifying our energy supply. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz speaking to a business forum in Toronto, talking today, of course, about uh, Germany's move away from Russian energy. They've been heavily reliant on Russian energy. That's been a big bone of contention in this war as well, because, of course, they continue to buy Russian energy, which very much fuels and pays for its war in Ukraine. Alexander Lenoshka is our guest this half hour. He's an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. He was with us the night this invasion of Ukraine began. So we brought him back tonight to talk about what's happened since. What have you made of, of just the NATO reaction, of, of the allied reaction uh, to Ukraine and all this? Because we weren't quite sure exactly what the response was going to be when this all started. I think NATO has reacted in a way that has surprised most observers and I think has exceeded expectations as such. I think many people uh, believe that NATO would simply stay on the sidelines and not do too much, but really individual members have coordinated and have uh, sent uh, ever-increasing amounts of military assistance in Ukraine 
of course, that is something that the Ukrainians want. It's not a proxy war. It is a war of survival uh, for the Ukrainian nation. And those countries that are more proximate to both Ukraine and to Russia have been really the leaders in this regard. The Baltic countries and Poland especially have provided lots of military assistance. Um, but even beyond military assistance, we have seen um, pledges for, um, for the provision of financial and humanitarian assistance. Again, the Baltic and the uh, Baltic countries in Poland have been leaders. Uh, further afield, um, the United Kingdom and, of course, the United States have also been uh, very much leading. There are still some division within the alliance. It is a 30-member going on 32-member uh, organization. So differences of opinion are going to exist, but they have been relatively muted all the same. The European Union has imposed uh, fairly significant sanctions on Russia. And indeed, um, France has really stepped up in its strategic messaging as of late saying that uh, the Ukrainian struggle is something very fundamental to European values and that uh, France is definitely committed to um, Ukraine over the long haul, which is not something that people would have expected um, in February or even in March of this year. So there has been a shift. People have been warning about that uh, attention dissipating, but that hasn't really quite happened yet. So I would argue that NATO and NATO countries have done a fairly decent job. Now, of course, Ukraine is not part of uh, NATO, and so there's no obligation really to come to Ukraine's uh, aid because that's just not how the treaty organization works. But all the same, it has been fairly significant in its provision of support. Do you see that lasting? I mean, we heard from Olaf Scholz there. Obviously, the Germans are moving away from Russian energy. You're trying as fast as they can. It's not an easy shift for them, considering how reliant they are on Russia for a lot of what fuels their economy, what heats their homes, heats their water, and so on. Uh, but do you get the sense that this unity will last? We know we're coming up on the midterms in America. There's always political change that can happen. Um, you know, this unity strikes me as being very important for the Ukrainians right now, not just with weapons, money and sanctions, but just the the moral boost that it gives Ukraine to know that there's this huge uh, block of countries uh, watching out for it and essentially supporting it from as close as they can get. So within the United States itself, I would say that support for Ukraine enjoys bipartisan support and indeed at least 70 to 80 percent of the public have reported uh, strong approval for the provision of weapons and or financial assistance to Ukraine. So I know, so I would suspect that that continue that would continue even after the midterms, no matter the result. With respect to Germany, I think we have to bear in mind that the German public actually has been much more supportive of Ukraine than the German state has been. And what I mean is that. Uh, the German state has been rather slow and hesitant in some cases to provide uh, military assistance, to actually deliver the military assistance that it has promised to provide, whereas members of the German public have been uh, exhibiting uh, strong support for Ukraine, knowing that indeed uh, winter may be a harsh one with the energy being what they are in Europe. So those are two cases where we might expect some degree of fickleness that might not exist in some parts of the alliance. It even, so, even so, I think there's some um, de decent basis for being optimistic about it. But of course, uh, war is a very uh, complex social phenomenon, and it could, talk, it could take all sorts of turns in the months ahead. 
Alexander, thank you so much again. Well, we're here again, and Ukraine, uh, we didn't know it uh, six months ago, but Ukraine is still standing. So thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much.